Hi, and welcome to episode 140 of the Crafty Planner podcast. My name is Sandy Hazelwood, and I will be your host. Through the podcast, I share the stories of makers in our community to inspire you on your own creative journey. Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to let you know that I'll be taking a hiatus from the podcast after this episode. From the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for all of your support. 140 episodes is a tremendous milestone, and I'm proud of the stories that I've been able to share and hope it has inspired you as the listener. On to today's guest. Living in Brazil, Sarah Watson is an illustrator, fabric designer for Cloud9 Fabrics, author, mother, and wife. She has a degree in textiles from the Savannah College of Art and Design and is passionate about repeat patterning. Well known for her floral and natural illustrations, Sarah supports human and environmental stewardship through volunteer work and donations. As a mother of two young children, she talks about her career evolution, why organic fabrics are important to her, and the changes she's made since moving to Brazil. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much. <laughs> Tell me about your creative journey. Um, well, my creative journey isn't, isn't, I wouldn't say it's spectacular. It's not anything too out of the normal. Uh, I grew up creative, which I think most of your guests probably grew up creative. I always was better at art than I was at math. So mm-hmm. I kind of focused on that when I was a kid. And my parents were really, um, here we go. Just a forewarner for all of you listeners, I I live in Brazil, so English is right now not spoken so much. Um, My parents were supportive. That's the word. (laughs) (laughs) My parents were really supportive and told me that I could go to whatever college I wanted to. So I went to Savannah College of Art and Design, and I went there not really knowing what I was going to do or study. Um, I knew I loved to draw, and that was pretty much it. I knew that probably engineering school wasn't what I should pick. So <laughs> art school it was. And I went there and I also played volleyball in college. They don't have as many sports there now, but that was one of the reasons I picked SCAD was because they also had an athletic program. And that was always a huge part of my life, being on a team and, and playing a sport. And so that's why I went there. And during our little training, pre-training camp before school had even started, one of our my teammates said, Oh, what, what fibery shorts you have on. And I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> She's like, you should really check out the fibers major. And I'm like, what is a fibers major? I wanted to major in drawing, but that wasn't an option at the time. And mm. I didn't think illustration would be a good fit. And so I checked out fibers and it turns out fibers was kind of exactly what it sounds. It's everything encompassing the world of textiles. They have um, focuses in in fine art and installation art and uh, handiworks like quilting and embroidery and surface design. Mm. And I thought the surface design was really cool. It was like the first time I saw my drawings and realized that it wouldn't have to just end at a drawing on a piece of paper that like, oh, this drawing can go on fabric and it could be repeated and it can go on yards and yards of fabric. And you don't have to just, you know, <laughs> keep drawing the same image. There's people that print this fabric. I took screen printing classes and and it's also where I learned about embroidery, which mm. came in really handy when I wrote my embroidery book uh, a couple of years ago. 
So, so I majored in fibers and, um, kind of focused on, on surface pattern design and I graduated and then I went to uh, work at Carter's Mm -hmm. children's clothing, which was a really great place to start out. I started out as an intern and I ended up doing the prints for the girls pajamas. And then I worked in the fashion side of it for a little bit. And then I kind of got a little bit stuck because it is a big corporate job. Mm-hmm. It's a great big corporate job, but it's a little limiting, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I have a super supportive husband and he said, well, why don't you just quit your job, you know, if you're not super thrilled with it? <laughs> yeah. And so I quit my job, which isn't always a great idea, but I'm a little bit frugal. So I had a lot of money saved up and I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do, but I quit my job and I kind of just started trying to get freelance graphic design work and pattern design work and the technical side of the repeats, putting, putting the re- the artwork into repeated pattern. You can get work doing that. I, I did sort of random jobs. And initially I thought that I would open up a print studio selling my artwork to companies. Um, but I was also submitting to fabric companies too, because that's kind of what I was more interested in. And I ended up getting a fabric line launched and that that's kind of it's just been going on <laughs> since then. <laughs> so Here where we are today. <laughs> So where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in I grew up in southern Alabama, which the more I talk to people, I was listening to another one of your podcasts the other day. I forget <laughs> who it was. Um but she was from Alabama too. Alabama is such a nice place. I think it has such a bad rap, but it's a really wonderful place to grow up. Southern Alabama, deep south. <laughs> so when did you decide to move to Brazil? Uh, the move to Brazil, I'm not sure it was really much of a decision. Uh, my, bro- uh, my my husband is half Brazilian. Mm-hmm. His mom is Brazilian, but she's lived in the States for 40 years now. So she's she's got her citizenship and everything. She's an American now. Uh, but when my husband was... Younger, his family made an investment and bought a beachfront apartment in Recife, which is in the northeast of Brazil. Mm. And when he was, when we got married, I guess he was, they decided that it was time for him to take over the apartment. And so it was our job to find a renter Mm. or sell it, or it was just our job to do something with the condo. And so the easiest renters we could think of was us <laughs> because I was working from home and his job was pretty flexible. And so we went down to visit in October, I think, of 2011 or in November, I guess it was Thanksgiving Day. Uh, we visited and while we were down there, my husband said, well, what about what if we moved? What if we moved down here? And mm. um, I'm pretty easygoing. I said, sure. And so in January, we moved down to Brazil. <laughs> Wow. And then we were there. So my my husband is really spontaneous and I'm super easygoing. So we end up doing a lot of crazy-ish type things like (laughs) moving to Brazil. (laughs) What is it like to raise your child in Brazil? Do you speak English and Portuguese to him or? (laughs) We just speak English to him. Okay. We live on a farm in kind of a really... um, Oh man, what's the English word? An afastado farm. It's I can only remember the Portuguese word. It's in the middle of nowhere. Okay. I know there's a single word for that. Secluded. Rural. <laughs> okay. Maybe it would work. 
So at home, we only speak Portuguese, but he goes to a little school, and I'm doing air quotes here. He goes to school to hear Portuguese, and he's he's three and a half now, and he's fluent in both. It's really, really interesting to watch because he has no problem. And for me, Portuguese was like a huge hurdle, and I'm still are fighting with Portuguese every day. It's, it's a really – I'm not very good at languages, I guess, mm. but – I'm still struggling every day to learn more Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And you, he's just you know, running around speaking both. With no <laughs> Do you find that the more rural you are, the less that English is understood? Or is it pretty, you know, like universally that English is just not as understood? Well, when we first moved down there, we, we lived in, so the, the place we live in now is in Sao Paulo, which is, a huge, it's a state and a city, just like New York, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in the state of Sao Paulo, not the city. And there, we, when we first moved to Brazil, we lived in the Northeast, which is, it's much closer to a third world situation. There's a lot more poverty and I think life is tougher in general and it's not as developed at all. And so there, English was, no, not nobody spoke English, but it was pretty uncommon Mm. And especially conversationally, a lot of, I will, I will say almost every Brazilian knows a little bit of English. It's really impressive. But as far as, you know, if I was lost and needed to ask directions in English, I don't think that I'd find my way. But in Sao Paulo, it's, it's so much more developed. Brazil is really interesting and it's got a lot of, um, sad difficulties that, part of the country is so developed and part of it is so, I don't know if it's neglected or just underdeveloped, but Sao Paulo is almost like living in the States. Everybody speaks English, (laughs) Mm. but I, but I, it's day to day. It's only Portuguese. I don't even try and speak English to people because (laughs) I need to learn Portuguese. (laughs) Well, you've designed for a variety of different mediums. We, We can talk a little bit about your embroidery book, but you've done stationery and wallpaper and a children's book and package design. What is your favorite medium to design for? Or do you just design and then fit a medium to it? Uh, When I started, you know, I was definitely just designing. My favorite thing to do is create a repeating pattern. Mm -hmm. And so that naturally just fits in to wallpaper and fabric Mm -hmm. or home goods. Um, I really love the little little it's not even difficult the technical aspect of putting artwork into repeat and so even even if I draw a a graphic a single image I almost always just turn it into a print because I love repeating patterns (laughs) and so my favorite is definitely I would say fabric plus you know wallpaper is very cool but I'm just not going to water wallpaper you know Mm -hmm. the rooms in my house I don't have wallpaper (laughs) and so the fabric is really great because you get to actually use the end product. It's yeah. and it helps it really helps your design when you get to see what you've drawn and how people are using it. So fabric is definitely my favorite. I honestly forgot about the kids' book. The kids' <laughs> book was really fun. I'd do another one of those, but that was sort of a project with a friend. I, I it was so long ago. <laughs> well, and I wonder if it might be different now that you have a child. Oh, it would be so different. Mm-hmm. I I'm not sure if any of you out there have the book or if you've read it, Sandy, but mm-hmm. it is 
a little bit technically complicated. It's a book about how chocolate is made, which is a pretty tough process. Mm-hmm. And my son loves the book, but I mean, you're really reading a tough book. <laughs> I'd probably talk to the author a little bit and say, hey, let's simplify it a little bit. It's it's a tough read. It's not a tough read. It's it's technical, but kids like it. Yeah. And the picture, definitely. Now that I have a kid and seeing what he notices in mm-hmm. the illustrations definitely changes things big time. Yeah, I've noticed that too, just as my daughter, she's five now, but you know, as she's gone through a variety of different books, I realize how different books at different levels are really just adjusting to their learning styles at that point, you know, um, like the early black and white books. And I was like, oh, this seems so boring, you know, to me who can, you know, admire color and then realizing, oh, they really can't make those distinctions in color quite yet. So the contrast is what they're really attracted to. Um, And I maybe it's just my inexperience with children, but I wouldn't have known that had I not happened. You know what I mean? Right. Same, same here. Shel Silverstein. I always read Shel Silverstein to my son and it's like, Oh, this is a hilarious poem. He's going to love it. I'm going to read it to him. And then like, I read it and it's just over his head, but to me it's so funny. And he just wants to, you know, hear the one that has an elephant in it because he likes elephants. It's like, you're not even listening to the words. You just want to see the picture of the elephant on the page. (laughs) But I wonder if there are, sort of connections that they make later when you reread it again. Um, Like, for example, my daughter loves to be read to. And so this morning I was reading, um, I think it's called The Secret Life of Bees. I picked it up when I was in Portland. And she really wanted me to read it to her. And I was like, okay, we're talking about a little white girl and, you know, an African-American woman traveling solo together. I was like, these concepts are maybe way above her head, but I think it's more that she just wants to hear me read. You know, there wasn't like pictures. And so I envision as she gets older, when hopefully she wants to read the same book, I'll be, do you remember when I read that to you when you were five, you know? Right. Huh. Yeah, I do think just hearing your mom's voice. I started reading Charlotte's Web to my three-year-old. Yeah, I haven't read that in a while. There's a lot of a lot of um, animal death in it. Yes, <laughs> and it didn't phase him at all. He was like, "Oh, okay, okay, he's gonna get killed. I get it." It's like, yeah, oh, okay. If you're fine with it, I'll keep going. Yeah, I was surprised too because I was struggling with there was a part where she stole something, and I was like, "Well, do I say she stole it?" You know, it's like I'm not condoning it, but um, yeah. So it's interesting to see how our work changes, or like how we might view it differently based off of the experiences that we end up having over time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. How do you think your work has changed since having your son? I'm going to be really honest here. I I would say that it's changed mostly because I've stopped doing it. <laughs> mm. I'm I'm I, I want to be super honest with everybody listening because I feel like there's a lot of stigma that you have to have you have to have a job if you are just a mother. You're telling me that you don't also you know create and sell something or do you know I am probably about 90% a mom right now. Um, Mm -hmm. I have another daughter, a daughter who's nine months old, almost 10 now. So the last four years I've been kind of just in baby mode. I, I am a mom. I do a lot of laundry. I do a lot of dishwashing (laughs) and I do like just recently I've started working about an hour at night. It's, that's the nice thing about licensing 
with artwork, you can create an artwork and you kind of have that artwork in your back pocket and you can contact a company when you think, oh, this would you know be a good fit with my artwork. It's not like a freelance work where I'm constantly having to go back and forth with the company and have deadlines and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a little more relaxed. And so in the last four years, I've, I've mostly just focused on, on being a mom. And I, I'm super fortunate. I will say that my husband loves his work and is such a hard worker that he makes enough money that I don't have to work too much. Mm-hmm. We can survive on mostly his income, but I am probably 90% mom and 10% artist. And, and I'd say about 5% of that artwork is me coloring with markers with my son. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like I'm, everybody says, Oh, I just wish I would have spent more time with them when they were little. So since I've had a kid, artwork has kind of been the second fiddle. Is that the right phrase? The second fiddle, the I third that, fiddle, probably. <laughs> it's like, I think that is, I would, pro- I'm not the best at, um, best at that either knowing all of the how how those work so um so one of the things that I noticed and I want to get into this a little bit more is that um you're a cloud nine designer so I want to talk about how that happened but one of the things I noticed at quilt market for example this past one in Portland was you know cloud nine tends to have its own presence, but not necessarily rely on the artist to be there and sell the work. So can you talk a little bit about how and when you became a designer and then why you chose organic cotton? Sure. First, I'm super jealous that you got to go, got to, go to quilt market. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wish I could have been there, but maybe one day in the future. Yes. Um, so let's see, how was it? I started working with cloud nine in 2013 mm-hmm. and I had a previous two previous collections with art gallery fabrics mm-hmm. it was wonderful to work with but it just wasn't um it wasn't a super great fit they released two collections a year and I just don't think my brain can think of that many fabric collections a year <laughs> I like to really concentrate on the one and then also the organic aspect is really important to me um as far as working, you know, it's the same thing. You have to work. Everybody has to work, right? Um, most of my work is being a mom, but if you're going to work, you have to, what is it? You make something and sell it, or you're a doctor or a teacher. And I feel like the people that, you know, the service industry, teachers, educators, doctors, you know, they're not creating waste, really. It's, mm-hmm. it's, they're, they're bringing something into the world by helping other people. And the way I earn my money is to make a thing, which is going to end up, you know, maybe thrown away one day. It's going to wear out and throw away. And I'm, I, the planet is a pretty important thing to me. I really think that a lot of our problems can stem from the problems with climate change. I read a a book called, what was it called? Collapse. Mm -hmm. And there was one chapter in it talking about drought in Africa and why wars start from drought in Africa because the people are suffering because they don't have anything to drink and, you know, they can't feed their livestock and they can't water their fields. And so people are killing each other and it's like, oh my gosh, the environment really does matter. It's not just, oh, you know, spring came earlier or later this year. It's, it has an impact on people's lives 
whether or not we take good care of the planet. And so part of that is, you know, try not to create waste, right? Don't end up, Mm -hmm. don't make things that end up in a landfill. And so organic cotton, I feel like is, you know, it's a small drop, but it's, it's a step, you know, it's cotton. And so it will eventually, you know, go back into the earth. It'll biodegrade. And uh, if I'm making a quilt, I'm trying to only use wool batting, no polyester. So, Mm -hmm. you know, using natural things is really important to me. And the organic aspect is really, it's better for the farmers too. Mm -hmm. Um, Working in a cotton field, I can't say from experience, although I do have cotton growing in my home, (laughs) (laughs) but working, really working on a cotton field, I'm sure is tough, tough labor. And if there's constantly pesticides sprayed all around you, it changes your, it changes your health. And so the the cotton aspect, the organic aspect is really important. Um, But as far as how I started working with cloud nine, I was looking back, preparing for this interview. And it was my first collection with them was Dem Bones. Mm-hmm. Dem Bones. And it was a small collection. I think it was five, five prints. And it was just grayscale, black and white and gray. And it was kind of um, a masculine collection. And I remember it was like, okay, well, we'll see how this one goes. And I was like, oh, please, please go well. <laughs> And I'm not sure how well it went, but I think it went well enough that I've continued to design for them. And I'm really lucky because it's a wonderful company to work for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So about Collapse, um, I've also read it. It's written by Jared Diamond, who was a professor um, where I went to undergrad. He was also teaching at that time. Oh, really? Yeah. And I think it's a fascinating book to really think about the interconnectedness of what we all do. You know, it's really easy to kind of be in our own space and, you know, maybe our own house and our own city and our own, you know, state even than our own country. But I think it does a really good job of talking about how, you know, everything we do does affect other people. And sometimes the people it affects are not people that can be vocal about those effects. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really, um, you know, pivotal discussion to have, you know, at a larger scale. Um, but sorry, I got really excited because I love that book. <laughs> so I'm so happy that you read that. How long did it take you to read that? It took me honestly probably four years to read it. It was a little over my head. Yeah, it um, it's one of those that uh, you don't just sit and read. Like you have to read a little bit and think about it and then you read a little bit more. Um, it probably took me three or four years and I read a lot of books, but that's also yeah. one that I had to physically hold and read. There was something about the weight of the book that helped reinforce the weight of what he was talking right. about. Um, and I, for me, I mean, I read a variety of audiobooks and then just electronic books, but that was one that I had to physically have. Um, and it sort was, of yeah, in. it's definitely one of those ones that I kept, you know, it's not going in the donation bin. It's going in the Maybe try and maybe try and reread this again someday. Yes. It was yeah. It's a, it was a really cool book. Yeah. Yeah. All of his books are really thought provoking if you get to read other others of his. I know. Guns, Germs and Steel, I'd love to read, but I have a whole list of books that I you know, before I buy another book I have to finish the previous books. Yeah. A rule. Yeah, that's a good rule. I can read two at a time. But yeah, Guns, Germs and Steel is pretty good, um, if you ever get a chance. Uh one of the things that I really enjoyed about your story is when you try and talk to other people about organic cotton 
And some of the responses that you've heard when you're asking about it, including somebody say, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to eat it? Um, oh. <laughs> So so I'd love to hear you tell that story because I, I think it's a fascinating discussion to have. Uh, It's, it's something that it, I'm not sure if it's a language barrier or um, a cultural thing where we've lived in Brazil is just, it seems like everything is about five to 10 years delayed. And so organic is just kind of getting really big where, oh, okay, people are getting what organic is. And as a designer, I get sample yardage to make sample quilts and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I usually just have it shipped to the States because I come to the States once, once a year, my parents come down and I just have somebody bring it down. Because if I get it shipped to Brazil, it always gets tagged in customs and it gets held behind because Brazil, one of the one most wonderful things about Brazil is it's, it's nature and, and they're pretty protective of it. And so they think that as an organic thing, they think it's some sort of produce or I don't know what they think it is, but I think they tag it because the word organic is like, Oh, put that aside in customs. Mm-hmm. It's got to be something that's going to affect our affect our environment. And so, I just had some of my sample yardage. This was the second time I tried in a long time. Shipped to Brazil, and it's it's stuck. It's stuck in customs. Mm. I'm just waiting for it to get out. But they have to really thoroughly look through it, even though I'm sure they can just open the box and and see. But I think the the idea of organically grown cotton is just so far away. Like what do you mean? Don't you just grow cotton? Like, (laughs) is there a difference between organic cotton and normal cotton? And like, of course there's a a huge difference, but you know, I think people on a day-to-day level who would think of that, who would think that like, Oh, this one doesn't have pesticides. I see. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird, it's like a really weird thing to encounter. Like, I, I can't imagine being in the States and buying organic cotton and and people thinking, like, this must be a food product because it's organic. <laughs> like, I was taking a shower today. I'm on, sorry, I'm on vacation, and there's organic body wash in mm-hmm. my mother-in-law's shower, and it's like, oh, organic. And, like, in my even in my brain, I guess this is me going, taking two steps back I'm like organic that's hilarious are you going to eat the body wash and it's like well you know it's cucumber so I guess even to products as far reached as body washes you can be organic that's great do you find that most of the fruit is organically grown even though or you know even though it may not have that name I I think that's one huge difference um, between the United States and Brazil. In Brazil, it's it's pretty rare that you can find an organic, a decent organic produce section. Mm. But judging by the quantity of bugs that I find in my produce, <laughs> and because I buy most of my produce just from a like a market stand, a little guy on the side of the road, I highly doubt that he's got the money to pay for too many pesticides. I guarantee you this guy's just growing. He's just, he's probably using manure as fertilizer. And mm-hmm. I, you know, down there, I just think that 
they don't exactly have a lot of people don't, I don't think they have the luxury of, of using pesticides and Mm -hmm. chemical fertilizers. So down there, it's just, it's a lot, life is a lot simpler and even grocery shopping is so much simpler. I hardly ever go to, you know, a big, big grocery store. I go to a little farm stand Mm-hmm. And it's not like a cool, trendy, like organic farmer's market. It's a guy that's making his living by, you know, picking sweet potatoes in his backyard and selling them in a cart on the side of the road. It's a really different lifestyle. It's it's super interesting. Yeah, I, I bet when you come back and forth, you're constantly sort of evaluating all those little things that are different. Definitely. The first time you step in a Walmart after not being in Walmart for a long time, it's like, get me out of here. <laughs> it's so big. There's so many people and so much stuff. It's, mm. I, there's, I think maybe a lot less waste in Brazil. And I mm. think as far as crafting goes, because there are less options and people consume less, I think there's a little bit more thought put into what you people are creating they mm-hmm. create something if it really need you know do I really need another quilt or you know I'm, I'm trying to sew some of my own clothing but I honestly don't need any more clothing mm. like what I have is fine and I really wanted to participate in me made me mm-hmm. and it's like well <laughs> I don't need any more clothing I have what I need I would love to create another top but like I don't use all my clothes anyways yeah, I, and so I'm trying to mend clothes. I'm, I, I figured that was a good, you know, way to jump in the bandwagon is mending old clothes. Close enough, right? Well, and I also think that, you know, for people who participated in Me Made May or maybe heard of it, <clears throat> that there's kind of this assumption that you spend the whole month before that that month making. But I think the essence of it was really just to celebrate what we have already made. So not to like go completely crazy that month and make more. But if you've made like a beautiful wardrobe already, then it's like, I'd love to see how you put it together. Or sometimes when people do like handmade capsule wardrobes, those are fascinating (laughs) to me too, you know, because I think you're right. Like we don't necessarily need more, but maybe just more conscientious decisions about what we choose to make and keep in our wardrobe. Definitely. And that's what I think after it's been, you know, a few years that I've been watching these posts and I have seen people like this is, you know, the third year I've posted this shirt or something. And it's like or second year. I don't know how long it's been going on. But, yeah, I've seen shorts that it's like, oh, I remember that person wearing those last year. How great. Like you are still wearing those shorts you made. You know, you took the time to so a quality product and you're wearing it year after year after year. How cool is that? Yeah. You know, and they could last you the rest of your life. How cool is that? (laughs) Well, I, I made a pair of Morgan jeans, the closet case pattern for blue jeans. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling really rushed and my friend and I were doing them together and, um, it was really just to build that skill set, right? Like, okay, now I'm working with jeans. I've never done that before. And now I'm top stitching and I've done top stitching, but not in the same oh, way. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, that sounds Well, and I and now I think that if I ever want to make another pair, because I've lost some weight since I made that pair, it's like I feel like I have that skill set. Um, and I also feel like, you know, when I end up donating my older pair that maybe somebody else will love them and enjoy them because, you know, they were made well, hopefully, and, um, and, and made conscientiously. Um, so maybe it's not about more, but 
you know, about like just being careful when you're beginning to consume to begin with. Definitely. And that's a good point about donating it. I, I was making three years ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to make a tank top and I was like, Oh, make a muslin first, make sure that it fits. And I'm like, Ugh, I hate doing that because I feel like I'm wasting it. And I was like, you know what, just make it out of nice fabric and finish it correctly. And I made it and it definitely didn't fit. And it's like, Oh, thank goodness. I made this like, you know, put a little thought into it. Yes. Yeah not the right fit for me and I'll adjust the pattern. So the next time the one fits me, but now I can give this one to somebody and it's a legit piece of clothing. It's not, you know, it's not made out of muslin. (laughs) It's made out of real fabric, which I'm not sure is always the right answer, but for me, it it made more sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I jokingly always call mine wearable muslins, you know, like, um, because I kind of am of the same thing, you know, I, I am uh, working on a Gemma tank and, I cut it out in Nanny Euro double gauze and I'm mm. sure somebody's going to be like, what you did a muslin in yeah. Nanny Euro double gauze. But I, I sort of felt the same way. I'm like, look, if it doesn't fit me, I'm going to donate it and somebody will have a beautiful thing. Or if I don't want to donate it, I could cut it up. Right. And put it in a quilt or something like that. Like mm-hmm. I'll find some use for it, but if it fits me, I want something beautiful to begin with. You know, I don't, I don't want something made out of muslin. So yeah, I think we have choices, right? We all have choices. <laughs> I know. And sitting down and really thinking about choices is like, oh, it's a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So um, you've said before, and I don't know if you still do this, but that you donate 5% of your profits to human and environmental stewardship. Um, why did you start that donation process and why is it important to you? Hmm, such a good question. Um, when I left my corporate job at, at Carter's, um, it's children's clothing. I'm not sure if I said that, but if you don't have kids, you don't know. Mm-hmm. I had no idea when I worked there what Carter's was. Mm-hmm. Now that I have two children, it's like, oh, of course, office <laughs> clothing. We did some, some kind of minimal volunteer work, but I tried as hard as I could to volunteer when I could. I always did Habitat for Humanity on the weekend, and I always thought, okay, you know, if you're quitting your real job, one day a week, go out and volunteer. And mm. and then we immediately moved to Brazil, and it was, I think, mostly because of the language. I had a really hard time finding places to volunteer. And also, this sounds a little contradictory. We are in the northeast of Brazil, which is a little... It's, it's somewhat poor. You would think more people would need help, but finding a volunteer organization was really hard. Mm. A local something, you know, it was also, I will say, it has to have been the language difference too, mm. but it was, it was international organizations that would come in on a trip. It was, so every time I tried to look for something local that, you know, I could go once a week and go volunteer, I just couldn't find it. And then I had kids and that made it harder too, because it's like, oh, I have to find a babysitter so I can go volunteer. And it was like, I couldn't find enough excuses to not go and volunteer. I was like, yeah. all, you know, and so I w- really felt like I left my corporate job to focus on, you know, giving back to the community a little bit as well as working. And I just wasn't doing it. So it's like, well, money. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. That's, yeah. that's like the easiest way to do it is donate some money. And I'm still working on finding volunteer work. Once my youngest kid, the nine month old goes to daycare to learn Portuguese, (laughs) 
because now now I, I know that there is volunteer work to be found and so I'm going to go do that but but um, I just try and donate some of the money I make and like I said earlier I'm not working a ton so it's not a lot of money but I mean it's it's helping a little bit mm-hmm. I think we're all really responsible for for taking care of each other people need to be nice to each other and you know I do my best to smile and create conversations with people and interact and be a nice person. But I know that the money helps too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile the idea of like creating more fabric, but then also doing it, you know, in a sustainable way. So it doesn't become, you know, just something else, you know, just another Mm -hmm. object. That's a tough one. Um, There was a quote that I came across and I feel like it was Maya Angelou, and I think it was something along the lines of we do, it was like, we do as good as we can until we can do better. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. You'll have to look it up because, or maybe it wasn't Maya Angelou. I don't even know who it was, but it was like, oh, like I used to, I used to just buy poly, whatever, polyester felt like awful. What an awful product. That's mm-hmm. never going to decompose. Yeah. Not that it's awful, but it's, you know, I, I just, I didn't realize that, you know, just buy the wool felt. It's much more expensive, but it was probably out of my price range at the time. You know, mm-hmm. not everybody can afford to buy organic cotton. I know it's a little bit more expensive and you know what? That's okay. If you're going to make a quilt and you can't afford organic cotton, buy the best quality stuff that you can so that while that product is on earth, it's used and it it's durable and, and I, this is a tough question. You might have to edit this one a little bit <laughs> because there's, I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of words coming up and it's hard to get them all out in a sensible way. But it's, if you're making a thing and the, the, I think the CEO of Patagonia also talks about yeah, this. Yeah. Um, you know, it's eventually, if you're making a thing, it's going to end up in, in the garbage. It's like, Oh, don't say that about my quilt. What yeah. a horrible thing to say. Like nobody will ever throw this away, but you never know. It might like how many of us find amazing hand sewn quilts at thrift shops. And it's like, Oh my gosh, somebody got rid of that, but mm-hmm. you know, it might. And so use the best, the best quality materials that you can and make it with care and put a lot of meaning and thought into it, you know, and you're doing your the best that you can to make something that that isn't you know if something made with with a lot of thought is mm-hmm. probably going to find its way to the dumpster a lot slower than something that was just oh you know I need to make another quilt so I can post it on Instagram because my feed's been slow lately take your time and and really put a lot of thought into things I think being thoughtful is probably the best advice to that that I've been able to come up with. And I think part of it for me with your work is that I, you aren't just churning out, you know, two or three or four fabric collections a year. You're very thoughtfully putting together well-designed products and then you're putting it on organic cotton or, you know, an organic substrate. Cause I was thinking about some of the clothing substrates. Um, so that then when I'm going to make something, I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. I'm going to want to keep this because it's so well designed. The colors mm. work well. I love the pattern. And then I know it's, you know, a really good substrate that I'm that I'm paying for. And so, you know, 
it just makes care sort of integrated into every component of it, the design, the, you know, the actual construction of the fabric. And then when it comes to me, then, you know, my construction of it, how much I love it, and then whether or not it gets donated or cut up and put into something else. It's just, yeah, I'm more hesitant to throw away something that I know has been so carefully made. Definitely. Um, And care every, every level too, like you said, you know, yeah, even like, I've been using some cheap thread and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, just buy the nice, you know, like you don't want the quilt to fall apart just because I was yeah. cheap and didn't want to spend the extra dollar on, you know, a nicer spool of thread. Like care at every single level is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I've often talked about, you know, this idea of, you know, supporting local quilt stores and, you know, is it really worth saving a dollar a yard you know, to buy something somewhere else, if you can support your local store, who's there, you know, to help you with binding or help you with color choices or has that, you know, immediate access to thread that you need, you know, it's, it's all in what we value. And if we want to keep certain things around, then we need to value them ourselves. Definitely. Definitely. So tell me about pen to thread your embroidery book. Hmm. Well, so that was kind of, it was, um, it kind of just came along. I don't, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's super easy to write a book. Like, ah, oh, I just wrote a book and then it was written. <laughs> Poof, um, I made it happen. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. And then there was a book. Yeah. I, I, in college, I studied, um, surface embellishment, I think was what the class was called. And mm. it was just experimenting with thread. And I, and I really loved embroidery and uh, I'd, I'd been doing it since then, just, you know, as an outlet when I had a a corporate job and to pass the time I've always embroidered and it's really fun. And then I've also always drawn. And so I kind of started putting the two things together, like, Oh, look at that. I can embroider this little tree that I just drew. How about that? Mm -hmm. And so at, at some point I had a nice collection of elements and, um, started talking with, interweave who was the publisher and and we decided to put together a book (laughs) and it's really fun stuff but it's I know not everybody embroiders because me personally I don't think I have a really close circle of uh creative people and so I've you know given the book away to some some of you know family and friends and it's like trace it and and have your kids color it it's it's like a coloring book that you can mount yourself or you know trace the element and blow it up and put it on your wall. It's a mural, but it's an embroidery book, (laughs) (laughs) but it's like, even if you don't embroider, I feel like you can utilize it in some way because it's got a lot of really cute motifs, um, in it and alphabets, which is nice. I grew up in the deep South and everything is monogrammed. (laughs) And so I think the, the alphabets are really cool for creating personalized monogrammed stuff. Well, and I've been watching your Instagram feed and just loving on all of the embroidery. And I I just love how you connect kind of nature and what you see and then figure out how to make that into your work, you know, whether it's embroidery or it comes, I see it later in a fabric design or something like that. Just feels very grounded and natural for you. Oh, thanks. It's, it's, it's really hard not to incorporate nature when you're living in, in Brazil. I live in part of the, um, what was the second largest rainforest system in Brazil? It's mm-hmm. not the Amazon, but the Atlantic forest. And mm. it's, it's 
so much nature. You, I can't get over it. It's incredible. <laughs> There's nature everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for talking about your process. And I enjoy getting to learn a little bit more about you. Thanks so much for having me. It was so much fun. Thank you for listening and for all of your support. You can find notes from today's episode on my website, craftyplanner.com. And until next time, stay crafty, my friends. Mm-hmm.